So during this retreat, we've talked about how the Brahma Viharas practice is a concentration practice. And so tonight we want to talk about how the Brahma Viharas fits into concentration practice and that fits into the overall Buddhist path. And when we talk about the Buddhist path, one of the aspects of it that is true of all Buddhist traditions is that there's three stages they all share. The first stage is sila, which is normally translated as morality or ethics. One of the translations or the perspectives on sila that we like is one that other teachers have used, which is living in harmony without regret. For Tina and I, we often use the term wholesome because we find that with using words like ethics and uh, that type of language, it implies um, judgment. It implies right and wrong, good and bad. And so that doesn't really help matters if that's accompanying your looking at your behavior. So the second stage is uh, samatha, which is generally translated as serenity, uh, concentration, and it's considered, the body of practices is considered purification of view, excuse me, purification of mind. And that's what, what we're doing here, is purification of mind, uh, purification of heart is the relationship. And then finally the third stage is vipassana, which is uh, seeing phenomena as they truly are. So this would be purification of view. So focusing in on the samatha, the serenity concentration practices, we uh, also, along with other teachers, teach another form of, uh, of samatha, which is anapanasati, and that's under the umbrella again of concentration practices and purification of mind practices. And when we speak of purification of mind, the way that uh, Tina and I teach, and this started with our teacher when he authorized us to teach, asked us to write our book and authorized us to teach. Initially, his instructions were pretty simple, and it was to keep the practices traditional, but to build bridges. And he emphasized the building bridges because he loved teaching Westerners, which he means everybody outside of Buddhist Asia. Um, but he knew that being from such a dominant Buddhist culture, he didn't have the language. Like if, we, if you would go to him for interview and say, I'm having a psychological issue, he would say, I don't know psychology. And that would be the end of it. But he Talk knew about that. elephants and stories involving yeah. elephants. <laughs> yeah. he, he knew about other things. <laughs> So as part of the building of bridges, that's, that's where we've, we've uh, looked into this. And part of the way our teaching has been evolving is looking at the application of purification of mind as transformational or transcendent. And they both go together. And the transformational you've experienced or had contact with over this week, and that's really where it impacts you personally. It impacts your personality structure, 
just the way you hold yourself, understand yourself, the way you define yourself. And you've seen how these can be touched by the work you're doing in the Brahma Bihara practice. As you're purifying your own heart, it can't help but purify how you hold your opinion of yourself and how you look out at the world. So it's kind of like a lot of you gets affected. <coughs> and so we see this with again, with the concentration practices we teach, that there's a purification of personality structuring and the way uh, people see themselves. Part of the practices are because they're, they have an intensity, the personality can open up a little bit. It's like a structure that opens up a bit while the practice is going on. And when you leave retreat and return back to your normal lives, your everyday lives, then that structuring will begin to come back together again, which is normal. And sometimes it doesn't quite come back together exactly the same way. Sometimes there's gaps, sometimes there's areas that got clean that were a little, a little crusted over. And so you see all these different ways that you might be impacted uh, and might be different. And the other area is, is transcendent. And by transcendent, we mean that these practices, even though they're impacting the personality and the personality structuring, the self, we're also orienting very specifically towards the mystery. We're turning away from what's known, turning toward what's unknown, and we're turning towards uh, just really what we can best call uh, the mystery, because it can never be fully known, it can be never be fully talked about exactly, and it's the area of transcendent relation, of transcendent I'm losing my words, of transcendent experience. So it's where the territory where people will talk about awakenings and where um, we talk about in the Anapanasati practice to different jhanas, things like this. This is all in the realm of the transcendent experience. So these are both working together in these kinds of concentration retreats which really benefit um, each of us. But looking at the concentration practices, what do they have in common? Well, all the concentration practices, you have one object of concentration at a time. So in Anapanasati, you've got mindfulness of breathing. In this practice, we're with the, the object, which is our sequence of beings. That's our, our object. And we use things like the uh, phrases to support being with that object. And then part of what happens, because we're getting more concentrated on the object, is that, and we use these phrases for support, is that these qualities of our true nature can arise. And we can come in contact with the Brahma Viharas, not as a personal emotion, but as a transcendent, really a transcendent heart quality, a quality of our true nature. And so we're focusing on this object uh, fairly much to the exclusion of all else. I mean, it's not literally true, because in this instance we're, we're paying a bit of attention to the phrases, and we're paying a bit of attention to the experience that's going on. But we're not really tracking anything else that's going on. So we're really, we're really narrowing that focus. And in the Anapanasati, it's really just that breathing. We're, in the way we teach it, we're being mindful of the breath as it's passing between the nostrils and the upper lip only.
So I want to focus a little bit more on what is concentration. There's three levels of concentration, three types. And one of the ways we've talked about it before is that Tina and I own this, this camping flashlight, which a lot of you may have seen. And it's one of these ones that has several, it can do several things. And uh, in one of the workings of it, it can pop, you pull the top on and turn it on, and it just shines in a very, like a lamp in, in every direction. And this is a great representation for momentary concentration. And momentary concentration is true in every meditation. So in, in a concentration meditation, we have momentary concentration because we're with our object uh, in this particular moment. The object isn't changing. So in each moment, that's where we are. And in other practices that we would call specifically momentary practices, the object is changing. So we're not just paying attention to the sequence of beings. In some practices, you might notice every sensation in your body, any activity in your mind, whichever is the most predominant, that would be where your awareness would go. So that, that would be the object in that moment. So see, both have momentary concentration, but it's a different kind. And so as this concentration develops, and as the awareness becomes more stable with the object, the next level of concentration that can develop is called access concentration. And again, this is true in a broad range of meditations. It simply means that the concentration is developed to a level that it's more than momentary concentration. So, in other words, you're going to be stable with the object in the concentration practices more than two or three, five minutes, something like this, and then all the way up to maybe 30 minutes at a time without interruption. So it's getting more stable. That's the main, the main aspect to focus on. And with our camping flashlight, if we shut the base and then turn the flashlight on, it's a normal flashlight that goes in one direction. So we can think about that light, the first light we had with momentary that was going in every direction. We've now brought it into a focus and it's going in only one direction. But it's going fairly broadly in that one direction. And this is like the axis concentration. It's developed into something that's concentrated and it's um, more than the momentary concentration in terms of the unification of mind, the brightness of mind. And then the next level of concentration is absorption concentration, what can be called jhana. And with the camping flashlight, once it's turned on and it's pointing this one direction, you can dial down the head of the flashlight and the beam will narrow down to about the size of a pencil or pen. And so this is more like the act of the absorption concentration, where it's more becoming, that light's becoming more like a laser, a real narrow, real unified, real concentrated beam of light. And that's how the, um, your awareness, your concentrated awareness is like. And within the, starting in the access concentration, there can be a, Product uh, as our concentration is developing, one of the byproducts can be these things that are called jhana factors. And unfortunately, they're extremely poorly named because just because the jhana factors are present 
doesn't mean jhana is present. So it's a little bit confusing. And of course, you can do other meditations, for example, the passing meditation. You can have access concentration because you're concentrated with your object. And you can have jhana factors arise. Jhana is not going to arise because you don't have a single object. In the days I did Zen practice, we had a changing object with the shikantaza we did, which was just a present awareness meditation. And I would have jhana factors arise because I was very concentrated on the object, but it wasn't going to lead to absorption. The concentration can't narrow enough to uh, lead to that. that. Want to add anything to that? Yeah, I'll just say that any there are sort of two categories of meditations, no matter what tradition you're in. (coughs) Concentration meditations where you have one object that isn't changing a whole lot, which is a, a potential within the Brahma Viharas, but it's done in a way that there's a lot more stability than kind of what we've done where it's changing every day. And then there are momentary concentration practices where really the what's consistent is the present moment, but within that present moment the contents will be changing you know, really moment to moment the contents can change. And this is why those practices cannot lead to jhana. I mean, they cultivate other things that are really important. So, you know, we, we value those practices, but there's just a capping as to high, how high a level of concentration is possible doing a practice like the pasana or shikantaza or, you know, other momentary practices. So the, these jhana factors... They, again, are a product of concentration, and there are five jhana factors. I'll mention the Pali names and the English translations we prefer. Uh, The first jhana factor is vitaka, which is applied attention. And this is where in the meditation, say, say the breath meditation, where you're simply bringing your awareness to the breath. That's applied awareness. That's simply uh, the function of that. And the second jhana factor is vitaka, and that's where the awareness is beginning to stay with the breath, for example. And it's not going away uh, very quickly, so staying for moments at a time, typically. And the third jhana factor is piti, which is normally translated as joy. And piti is a... uh, the felt sense of piti is a body sensation, a joyous body sensation. It can be really, um, really effusive. It can really get, the PT can get to the level of even a kind of rapturous state. So people sometimes can have some involuntary little body movements because the energy in the body is just really intense. So that can happen with PT. Fourth jhana factor is sukha, and sukha is a head only. So PT is body, so neck down, and the sukha is head only, where it's a uh, described a lot as a. Uh, it's translated as bliss, but it's the felt sense is more of a bubbly, effervescent sort of quality. So a very lightness, and and there's a real soothing quality to it. Where you feel very settled, and everything seems very fine. So it's a very kind of calming effect. And the fifth jhana factor is ekagata, which is one-pointedness. 
And the one-pointedness is a little bit difficult to talk about. It's where the concentration has refined and unified to the extent that the awareness is really staying very consistently with the object in a particular way. And people will describe in their meditation that that something happened where they felt the meditation just took a step up somehow. It just all of a sudden it just things just sort of moved into place in a particular way. And on the high end of that we sometimes talk about it as the lock on, where it seems that the awareness is so intimate with the meditative object that you can't you can't dislodge it. You feel like you can't dislodge it if you wanted to. It's that 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 connected to the meditative object. And so for jhana to arise, again, all of these can, can show up in access concentration. So when the concentration is refining and unifying, these can begin showing. And they don't show necessarily in a sequential order, and they can ebb and flow until there's some stability. But for jhana to arise, these normally have to be on the high side. They're going to be fairly discerned by the meditator and um, part of the meditation too that they feel so good the PT and the Sukha in particular will feel so good that people will be very comfortable meditating and so they're meditating longer and because they're meditating longer they're getting more concentrated so it becomes this great self-reinforcing loop of positive behavior that happens and at some point um, there's some further steps and the jhana will arise and uh, to say a little bit about the jhana, the jhana experience is a non-dual experience. And by dual, uh, what we mean is there's a subject, there's a me, and there's an object, there's a, something that I'm taking as my meditation object. There's, um, you know, my breath here. So I'm I'm taking the, the breath as my object. There's clearly this is the relationship. And that would be a dual relationship. And what happens in as the jhana arises is that there is a collapsing of that. And so the, the experience is fully aware. It's not an unconscious or a zombie state of any kind. There's full awareness, and yet there is no longer the sense that I am doing this meditation, I am having this experience. It's just there's this perception. There's this awareness, and within this awareness, this experience is happening. And so there isn't the self-referencing. That, that gets set aside. And there just is this sense of um, this perception of this particular uh, state, which I won't talk about uh, more than that, but it's important to know that it's, it's a non-dual state. So that's the... Um, Jhana factors uh, about how they how they work, what they are, uh, just really in a nutshell. I don't want to go into too much detail, but they're again they can happen in uh, many kinds of meditation. But as Tina was saying, because the object isn't changing, you can't take it to the level of <coughs> jhana. But with the practices you've been doing, the Brahma Vihara practices, all of them can be taken to jhana. So they can be, the concentration can develop and go through the stages of the access concentration. A few people were, were indicating that in their interviews, some of the people who have done retreats with us in the past and are aware of jhana factors, we're seeing some little signs. 
So it can happen absolutely and can develop. And as Tina and I did the practice, we did them inside our head of students to the level of jhana. So we're familiar with that process. But it takes time to do that. It's something that within a week would be pretty pretty difficult to have happen. I mean, it theoretically could happen, but it's fairly unlikely. It takes sustained uh, practicing in that way. So comments on, on that? Yeah, the, the only thing I would add, a couple of things. One is that, just to be clear, jhana factors aren't emotions. Um, just as Brahma Viharas are, even though they have an affective tone with the Brahma Viharas, as do the jhana factors, they're not, they're different than emotions because, like with the jhana factors, as this sort of laser-like awareness develops, um, what's happening is that our normal sense of, well, our normal, the identifications from the personality that are just sort of running constantly in the background, those get thinner and thinner and thinner. And these qualities that are really always available to us, they are like the, the, the Brahma Viharas in that they're inherent qualities of the mind. But we normally, there's so much mental activity and there's so much getting whipped around by emotions and other things that we're burning off all of this potential access to our deeper nature is being burned off through thinking and reactivity and other things. So um, these are these are qualities of the mind that are byproducts of concentration. They're not things that we can get by like, you know, reading a Hallmark card or listening to music or you know, so I mean it would be great if, about, if we could, but but they're not they're not emotions how about that are Having cats, if I'm taking the cat as my object, you know. Um, so just to be clear about that with the jhana factors, and then the other thing with concentration is that um, it, we often we use a lot of metaphors when we're teaching those retreats. But it's kind of like a pot of water boiling, where you got to keep the lid on it long enough, or it just if you keep taking the lid off all the time, it's just not going to boil. It's not going to get enough momentum before you take the lid off. And this is part of why, like, in what we've been doing, and even even if doing metta with one person for a whole week is still, you know, it's unlikely that jhana would arise, but the way, you know, we've really been doing this retreat is purification of heart, which has a huge number of benefits that are... Um, are less about concentration than they are about purification of heart. But, you know, what we've been doing going through a lot of different objects, we're just taking the lid off the pot a lot, you know, and that's fine. We weren't really, this retreat wasn't so much about concentration, but just to give you a sense of how these things work, when we teach the Anapanasati, basically you're just with the breath, you know, 14 hours a day, and that's it. So this is why concentration practice is when it's done for concentration it's usually started out with um, the Anapanasati practice one last thing I wanted to say uh, and that was I was talking about the the transformational transcendent there's an aspect of the transcendent of jhana that I'd like to mention and that is because this is a a non-dual experience really you can think about it as your individual consciousness merges with the universal consciousness in a way that's un, undefined. You can't, you can't see the edges, you can't see where yours is and 
universal is, they're intermixed. And when that happens, there's an enormous amount of transcendent purification of mind. So it's really like with, with all of the, the ways that you know yourself, all the markers, all the ways that you have a sense of self are suspended, there's just a pure awareness that your consciousness, in, again, intermixed with this universal consciousness in a way that there's just this uh, really pure purification of mind that's happening, transcendent purification of mind. And for most people, when they have the first jhana experience, it lasts a very short time. It's generally no more than a few minutes. Several seconds. Or, well, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being on the generous side of few minutes. <laughs> because it's, it, there's a real intensity to it that's very unfamiliar. And over time, and repeated exposure, it gets to where the system starts getting upgraded to where you can, your awareness can tolerate more and more of this direct, pure, transcendent purification. So that's why we talk about it. And of course, when these experiences happen, and then again, retreat's over, and people move back into their usual, and the personality comes together again, it's influenced by the fact that this pure, pure awareness has been in contact with your system, with your consciousness. And so it affects how it gets put back together again. So we see this with students. They're just, their lives keep getting more refined and more refined based upon their purification of their own mind and then their contact with the transcendent. Yeah, and just another way of holding that is that the, the veils of delusion that we actually are separate drop temporarily. And so that can be experienced directly and, you know, they will come back. The, the jhana state isn't, isn't like a permanent uprooting. But um, even when we come back into a perception of separation and so on, it's affected by that experience in a way. So this is, you know, we've been doing the transformation and transcendence on this retreat, the transformational being digesting maybe a lot of difficult experiences or, or finding more freedom in the heart to be more open in um, considering different uh, ways of relating to others or ourselves. And so this is really, I mean, this work is extremely transformational in terms of um, really being able to digest and meet our, our worldly experience or our sense of who we are in relation to others and so on in a way that has more freedom to it. And that's really the transformational quality of what we've been doing this week. The transcendent side of that, as Stephen was saying, is really having more capacity to um, experience the Brahma Viharas as a part of your true nature, that we all have it innate as a, as a capacity, and to have more, um, more fluidity with that, so that it, you can, it can be experienced and can arise more um, with more freedom as you encounter situations in life. So, you know, both practices have both sides of the coin. They're just experienced differently. Like with the Anapanasati, because you've got one object, it's, a, it's intense. I mean, not that this week hasn't been intense, but it's a different kind of intense because you're, there's nowhere to go and you just see what's going on in your consciousness. 
everything, whatever's there that's normally un- under awareness, eventually, I mean, in two weeks you see a lot, in a month you see even more, you know. Um, so, so they're just they're different ways of working with our consciousness, with the mind stream, in ways that trans transform and that transcend. And you know, all of them, both both kinds of practice are really beneficial. Shall we go on? There's no more. I think so. <laughs> That's enough. Okay. So I'm going to talk now about um, taking what we've done this week and what you've experienced into your life outside of the retreat as we are getting ready to go back to worldly life. And um, so, so I'm going to talk about a couple of aspects of this. And the first one is daily practice. And so we've, you know, alluded to this and talked about a little bit how might this look in daily practice. And so there's the option of, um, we really, as we said, encourage people to undertake a period of practice with a certain practice rather than kind of each day just going, well, what do I feel like today? Because that really allows for a deepening and to have some some continuity with a particular practice over some period of time, like a month, um, or even longer. I mean, we've had people who've done, for example, the Anapanasati concentration practice for, for periods of years, or people who've done Vipassana for periods of years. So it's really, you know, your own wisdom, what feels right for you in your practice. Um, so one way to do it would be to, to do a period with all of the Brahma Viharas and to do, say, like a week with each one or a few weeks with each one or a month with each one. You know, something like that where you would really think about doing them as a, as a package of the four. Um, and so within that... Again, just like being here, there are different ways you could do that. You could do it where maybe you focus on a particular person or being, you know, if it's an animal, but, you know, mostly it would probably be a person. You could actually, you know, maybe you've had experiences during this week where you think, yeah, I really, you know, maybe there's something there for me to spend some period of time a week or, you know, whatever really with a particular person or in the case of Upaka with a certain situation that I'm going to really um, go deeper with. That would be one option. Another option would be to do it for yourself, which is, you know, really a worthwhile exploration for, you know, for all of them, whether in with um, Mudita, that would be the gratitude practice. Uh, and then there's there's doing more of the all beings where you would you know start with your whoever the first one is and do the practice where you're working through individual beings all the way up to all beings so those would be different ways of doing the practice um, doing them as all four practices another is to use metta which is kind of 
you know, as we talked about, it's kind of the baseline Brahma Vihara, and also it is one of the four, there's, there's four meditations that are called the protective meditations, and so metta is kind of pulled out as one of the four protective meditations. And this is why sometimes metta is taught by itself without the other Brahma Viharas. Um, and it's also the most, you know, it has the widest application. And a lot of people, frankly, do, will just do metta for themselves as a practice that's done, you know, maybe for a few months a year, every year, or, you know, even there are people who will do metta like for a whole year as their main daily practice. So these are all options for you to consider. Um, we find that, like, when we will cycle through different practices at different times, and like for, for me or for us, if we're finding ourselves in a period that has maybe some conflict or some, um, or maybe where we're feeling kind of jangled inside in some way, Metta can be a really, and I did metta for myself and Karuna when I was having my health issue. You know, it really was something that I found um, really, there was so much angst in that situation. And, you know, I, I was also almost completely disabled for, you know, I thought it was probably going to be for the rest of my life. That's what I was being told. So, you know, there's a way where that was a really appropriate thing to be doing at that time. So, you know, it doesn't have to be that extreme of a situation, but there can be some, a real beauty to doing the metta practice at, at certain times of life where it seems especially useful. Let's see. So, uh, one of the things we say no matter what practice that you're doing is that, like for us, people will often ask, well, should I meditate every day? And basically, our answer is yes. We think you should. And believe it or not, some Buddhist teachers won't say that. So, um, so we're we're not am, ambiguous about that. We just think you should. And so, why is that? Um, and for us, you know, there's both of us have been meditating literally every single day. Like for myself, it's been 21 years. And I don't think I've missed, I mean, maybe the first few years I might have missed one or two days a year. But literally since then, I haven't missed a day in like, you know, 21 years, except for those few days, those first few years. Why? Why would I do that, you know? Well, we think about it as um, something that's not in the optional category. So, like, for me, there was a big shift when I went from, like, every day or you know, once a week or whenever, I'd say, oh, am I going to meditate today? Well, by the time I've asked that question, you know, a lot of times most of the day has already gone by or it's the end of the day, I'm tired, I don't really have the mental energy to do it. And that puts it in a category where it's, it becomes really easy not to do it. Or it feels like a burden. Oh my God, I've still got to meditate today. You know, that kind of thing. Whereas at some point, for me and for each of us separately, because this was before we met, it went into the category like brushing my teeth, you know, where it's, or, or like taking a shower or eating that day. It's not something that I think about whether I'm going to do it or not. I just know that I'm going to wake up, and, and we like to meditate in the morning, so we don't ever talk about it. We just know we're going to get up, we're going to 
you know, take care of our pet and then have breakfast. And then when we're done with that, we're going to meditate. And on the days when one of us has to go rush off and, you know, do some something, like when I used to work full-time, and, you know, it was more than 40 hours a week, I would sometimes have to get up at 5 and be somewhere to do something starting at 7 or 8 in the morning after driving for two hours. I'd sit in my car before I went into these meetings, and I'd meditate. I'd try and, you know, get there so I knew I wouldn't be rush hour, and then I'd just sit in the parking lot in the parking garage and meditate. Or like when I used to commute into, into work on BART on the public transit, I'd do it there. So, you know, this is a way where doing all these things really cultivated in, for me, a capacity. It's, it's not like I have to have the perfect conditions in order to meditate. And, you know, it might have been better if I had had the perfect conditions. But, but then that becomes a reason not to meditate. You know what I mean? So this is where we just suggest that if it's something that speaks to you, that this is a way of being able to meditate every day without it having to be something that, you know, that you have to think about it each time. Can I add something else? Sure. Um, the other thing we've noticed is that there are people who, if they have a meditation or several days of meditation, that they think aren't very good. They'll say something like, I had some lousy meditations or bad meditations. That will get them to often stop for a while or they'll be more spotty. And one of the things that we said was, we actually don't have an expectation on how our meditation is going to go. We don't know how it's going to go because we're not controlling it. But we meditate. So we meditate and whatever happens within the meditation, that's what happens. And it changes the, the dynamic if you hold it that way rather than saying, well, they've got to be good or they've got to be special or I've got to be impacted in a certain way. Then it becomes, again, it goes to that list. I say sometimes people up on their list of cleaning the garage, you know, meditate, kind of when I get around to it. So the, right. the brushing the teeth list is better. Yeah, we, I mean, imagine you're sitting there in front of the mirror brushing your teeth. Oh, wow, this is a really good toothbrushing today. This is so much better than yesterday. You know, you're not evaluating it every time that you're brushing your teeth how good it was. You do it because it's good for you. And that's how we see meditation. So... We'll just offer that as um, if you're not meditating every day as, as one way to look about, look at it. Well, well another way they can be supported with the uh, the insight timer too. That's right. Yeah, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, so, I mean, it's really about making a commitment to yourself. Just the way we're doing other things that are for your health. This is something for your health. You're exercising your consciousness by doing that. Let's see, what else? Um, the other thing about metta or any of the Brahmaviharas is that a lot of teachers who teach Vipassana in particular, and we do this on our retreats, sometimes it's, it can be really helpful to just a, apply like a small dose of a Brahmavihara before doing another practice. So I know this violates our rule a little bit, but somehow with the Brahmaviharas it seems okay to just sort of uh, like on retreat, a lot of times somebody's experiencing a lot of, um, you know, any of the far enemies, like you know, a lot of aversion or fear, we'll have them do metta for some period before they actually do the other meditation. And a lot of the pasana teachers will have people do that. And the same is true with 
equanimity or with compassion or with mudita. So that is also another option is to do, you know, five minutes or something of one of the Brahma-viharas and then go into another practice that's kind of your, your main one. Or on retreat, sometimes teachers will, will actually suggest that to people. So it's just a way, it's used a little bit like an antidote in that, in that context. Then the other um, part, there's two other parts of kind of transitioning into worldly life. And one is around sila, which Stephen talked about is really, we really think of this as how do I live my life in such a way that my outer life is um, as congruent as possible with my inner life and what I've what I know is true inwardly in my experience like on retreat or in meditation. And so like for us, we will frequently, like every year we do this formally once a year when we do kind of our, we look retrospectively and then look ahead at the next year, we'll really look and see is there, um, are there places in our lives where we want to kind of up to, to commit more to something, like, you know, maybe committing to a certain um, lifestyle change or how much entertainment I'm taking in or what kind or eating certain things and not others or maybe not drinking or, you know, there's so many places in our lives where um, to bring consciousness to that and to take it on as a practice is really what Sila is about is am I living my life in congruence with my, with my inner experience? And, you know, you've just experienced a whole bunch of things here that maybe there may be, there, there could be ways you're living your life that you may want to um, look at and see whether they need, there need to be any changes so that there can be harmony there. Um, Sometimes, so there's two ways, really, with the Brahma-viharas in particular, that two sort of aspects of things we can look at on the individual level. One is that there may be ways that we, you know, work that you've done over this week where it may require a conversation with somebody that might be difficult. You know, I mean, I'm sort of making up what that might be, but just as we work a lot of this you know, a lot of what we do with these practices has to do with other people. And so sometimes that's required. Sometimes we might need to go and clean something up. You know, is there maybe a way where we realize we did something unskillful and we need to go, or there's the opportunity to go and do some, some cleanup work. And it's really never too late to do that. I mean, even years later. It's that those conversations can be had really at any time. So this is really about the, the living in harmony without regret. And then the second is how we engage with the world. And there's been a lot of conversation on this retreat. You know, many of you are very passionate about things that have to do with socially engaged Buddhism. We talked, we used that term the other night. And how do we... Um, is there, are there ways that we want to <coughs> reduce harm in the world? I guess that's kind of the most generic, um, comprehensive way of looking at this. And many of you are very passionate about certain things that are going on in the world that are 
unjust, that are inhumane, that you feel passionately about things like racism and incarceration and environmental issues and animals and you know so there there are many places that harm is happening in the world I mean it doesn't take we don't have to look very far to see that happening and this is a place where um, we can really bring a lot of consciousness to what we're doing and, and maybe look more deeply at things like how we are either counteracting or perpetuating something like racism you know, these are, I mean, I'm using this as an example, it's come up, and, and there's a way where when we are, in, when the heart is open, when our hearts are open, there's, there's a way where we really can feel the effects of harm happening. And to be, to bring increased consciousness and commitment to not perpetuating that or to even reducing it actively through activism, through engaging in our own lives and whatever opportunities we have to reduce this, you know, different kinds of harm. This is what is called socially engaged Buddhism. And, you know, these practices in particular really um, highlight the levels and the types of harm that are happening and can really call us to um, to being more proactive in our lives in terms of reducing reducing harm to ourselves and to others. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to also come back to the transcendent transformative because as these are being affected, as our transformational changes are happening and the transcendent there's more and more contact we talked about this a little bit that there's this thinning of the me the sense of self gets thinner and thinner and as that happens a lot of the separation that we feel between ourselves and others begins to soften and soften and to the point where we really begin to see not only ourselves but everyone around us every being around us as being an expression of whatever you consider the source to be, whatever you consider it being or uh, the unconditioned or what, whatever language. And so that affects also behavior and perception because really when there's harm being done to another, it's really no different than harming yourself. In fact, mm -hmm. it is harming yourself because we all are the same. The sameness begins to be known in a way that's inescapable and non-conceptual. So we, we didn't tell the story of the Buddha, but this might be a time to just sort of look at briefly how, you know, what, what was he really about? And he was, he was born into a wealthy family, he was, a, you know, a prince. Um, his, because when he was born there was a prophecy that he would either become a very respected king or a, a very respected spiritual teacher. His father shielded him from seeing suffering. And so he wasn't really, I mean, literally to the point where up until a fairly older age, he didn't see sickness, old age, and death. He didn't he had never seen a sick person. He didn't know about death. And... He, I, you know, I, I don't know how he didn't know about old age and things. It's kind of, not sure how it was 
he actually executed how his, his dad did that. But it wasn't until he was at a certain age and left the palace and he saw um, within a, sh a day or a short amount of time a sick person, which he didn't know what that was, an old person, and a dead body. And it just struck him. I mean, can you imagine being like 20 years old or however old he was and not really knowing that these things exist and seeing this all at one time and then realizing this is going to happen to me. You know, I'm not exempt from this either. And it just was like this avalanche of him really getting suffering. And that was when he decided to leave and really find out about... Um, you know, what is suffering? What's, what are the causes of suffering? And is there a way to eliminate, reduce or eliminate suffering? And that became his life. And unfortunately for his dad, he didn't become a king. But fortunately for us, he did become, a, you know, an amazing spiritual teacher that, you know, we, so many millions and billions of people have followed his teachings for so long. So really, I mean, he was about reducing suffering and harm, and the way that he did that mostly was through, through the teachings of liberation, where through working with our own understanding of reality, um, the ultimate liberation is really possible. But he did do other things, like he you know, disregarded the caste system, which was pretty revolutionary for his day, and he brought women into the monastic order, which even though it wasn't quite on a par with men, it was pretty, again, it was pretty unheard of for his day. So this is, you know, there's a long tradition of um, reducing harm and suffering within Buddhism. And, um, and as Stephen was saying, you know, the deeper we go in the practice, the more we really can see that what happens to another is happening to us at a very fundamental level. So we just wanted to bring that in as really a, a core part of um, these teaching and practices. So let's see, we have one more thing to talk about tonight and that's sauna. And we know some of you this is your first retreat, so we're not sure, you know, how much understanding there is amongst everybody about Don and how that works in Theravadan Buddhism. But um, for us, you know, when we started teaching, we'd both been practitioners for a long time. And we really wanted to find out what, what did the Buddha have to say about generosity? And really, Theravadan Buddhism has, has been kept alive through the generosity of lay people for originally the monastics and then later lay teachers as well. Which is what dana means. Which is dana means generosity. That's just the term for generosity in Pali, the original language of um, the Buddhist text. And we, what we found when we started doing the research was that the Buddha actually, he would only teach in places where there was a lot of generosity within the Sangha. And he wouldn't teach in places where there wasn't generosity. We were really surprised by that. We thought, well, the Buddha would have just taught anywhere. You know, any place that people wanted the teachings, he would have just gone there. And it was kind of surprising that, that um, he had that kind of clarity. And the reason was that he felt that generosity was so fundamental to being able to have a spiritual path and a spiritual life that without that, 
the teachings just wouldn't have anywhere to land. And this is why he didn't go to teach in those places. And, and the practical aspect of there was no way to keep the monastic order going without that generosity because the monks and, and the nuns didn't have a way of feeding themselves even. So this is a long history in the Theravadan tradition and the way it works is that Theravadan teachers and the other two lineages of Buddhism have don't have this. They actually charge fees. So when you go to a Zen retreat or a Tibetan retreat, the teacher fee is just built in. That's how it works. And there is a there is a possibility within our lifetimes that Theravadan Buddhism may go that way because teachers just can't support themselves on on Dana. And the younger teachers just, you know, Anyway, that's a whole story I won't get into. But it is, this is how it's done. It's part of the Theravadan tradition. So like what you pay to Cloud Mountain goes to Cloud Mountain. And we come here and we, like when we did our month, we came for a month not knowing what would be reciprocated or not. You know, So it's a, it's a big commitment as, as a Dharma teacher to show up not knowing how our own sort of livelihood will be supported. And um, and people are very generous. So, you know, it's very, it is gratifying to see that, but there's always that, you know, that trust that as a teacher one comes for in terms of the reciprocity that's really kept Theravadan Buddhism alive. So, you know, so there's the whole spirit of dana that really the teachings are offered with that spirit of dana in Theravadan Buddhism that they're offered freely. And people have, there's a whole range of what people can afford to offer as support for teachers. And, and because um, the teachings are offered on dana, that's allowed. Whereas if there are fees charged, then it's just whoever can pay that, that's it. Um, and then there's the practical side. So just a little bit about us. You know, when we became teachers, it wasn't something we were really seeking out. We were in the middle of normal lives with mortgages and, you know, all kinds of the things that you all have in terms of, you know, financial commitments and things like that. And we also aren't wealthy. I mean, you know, we, we don't, we didn't inherit a lot of money so we could just teach as much as we want and have it not matter. Um, so, I mean, this is just part of the truth as a situation is that our ability to continue teaching is by, based in part on whether or not we can actually support our life based on the dana. So, you know, so that's really what dana is. Dana, in terms of generosity, there's so many aspects of generosity that it takes to, to even offer retreats like this. You all have been doing yogi jobs. That's part of generosity and the, you know, practice leaders and bell ringers and so, you know, it goes far beyond just uh, dana that is for the teachers, but the teacher dana is, I mean, without this Theravadan Buddhism really would have died out, you know, thousands of years ago. So I think that's probably it on Donna. You know, there's kind of the spirit of Donna, and then there's the practical side of it. So if you do feel like, and people will often say, well, what, you know, if I did want to give Donna, what's the right amount? 
And really the right amount is what would feel generous to you. I mean, we, we try to be as generous as we can with our time, with if somebody needs a little extra support, and we really show up and we give it our all for the teachings. And so that's our Donna to you. We've already given our Donna to you, which is showing up and really being present, as present as we can to do the best we can as teachers for you. And so so that's really the guideline is what, what feels generous to you. So normally the way it works, there's a little table in the back, and on the left side is the teacher Donna sort of area. And for people in the U.S., we have receipts out, and if you want a tax receipt, you can just take it and fill it out for whatever amount um, is appropriate. And then on the right side is Donna for Cloud Mountain, and Laura's going to talk about that in the morning. One thing on the Donna to us, if you want to um, write a check, you can write it to Awakening Dharma, which is our nonprofit, and it's a tax deductible donation. And it says it on the little forms. If you forget what the name is, it's on the, the little forms back there. Right. And if you need a tax receipt, uh, then you can let us know and we can supply that. So let's see. Um, other other logistics, just a couple of things. Um, Tomorrow? Yeah, so in the morning, the sitting will be officially starting, as always, at 6.30. But because of the Cloud Mountain closing, Jeremy's going to come in at 6.45 and give the closing instructions. So please do come to that sitting so you can hear you know, what you need to do to clear out your room and all of that. Um, we'll, be, we'll be in here at 6.15, so if you still want to do a half-hour sitting, you can just come in at 6.15 and do it that way. If, you, if 15 minutes is enough, then you can just come at 6.30. Um, let's see. And then as a reminder, it says, a, it says 9 o'clock on all of the schedules that are posted, but we're actually going to be doing the closing at 8.30. So please be back here at 8.30, and we'll, the room will be just set up like this, and after the closing, then... We'll put all the, you know, whatever you're using to sit on will be put away. So, so what will happen again? The meditation officially starts at 6:30 here, um, and we'll end at 6:45 when Jeremy will come in and read what he needs to read and answer questions, which should end about 7 or 7:05. Then it's what they call tea and toast in the dining room. So it's not a normal full breakfast, um, and that starts at 7. And then uh, between 7 and 8.30 is open time for you to do pack and clean your room, your yogi job, whatever you want to do. And then we'll meet back here at 8.30, do our closing. And at that point, we're done. And, the and, and we'll actually be leaving right after that. So right, we've got a flight I, to catch. So in terms of, you know, Donna, if you want us to take it with us, then that would right. be good and, timing. And then Cloud Mountain will have a brunch starting at 11. So you'll have the time between... We, we, we won't end later than 10, and so in another hour we can do packing and cleaning and whatnot, and then uh, have brunch at 11. Yeah, so you'll have plenty of time in the morning to do whatever you need to do to, you know, finish up. And then I think there are closing yogi jobs. You may have a, signed up for a job that's part of the closing. They do have a group coming in. I think it's a 24-hour turn, mm-hmm. and they'll be here for a month. So, um, so Cloud Mountain's 
um, really, I guess, you know, I guess we could say that they're kind of counting on you guys to do your closing <laughs> jobs. <laughs> okay, so we don't have a, a lot of time, but um, we'd like to open it up. We actually have a question that we got and a note that we want to answer, but we'd like to open it up after that to questions really on anything we've talked about tonight or throughout the whole retreat, and especially if anyone hasn't asked a question or a comment, we'd like to invite you or uh, welcome you to do that. Excuse me about Donna. Like, if somebody wanted to uh, or needed to pay other than a check, don't you have, um, can't you take credit cards on the other side Good question. Yeah. So the question is, can, if someone wants to pay by credit card, can they do that? And yes, on our website, which is awakeningdharma.com, there's a Donna Donna button, donate button, mm-hmm. and there's a way to, to do it there. Yeah, if you go, is, is do we have a section on Donna? No. It's I either think donate or Donna, I can't remember which. Um, well, if you can't find it, we have under mentoring and guidance, which we'll talk about tomorrow, but there's a place where you can hit a PayPal button on there. So that's, that's an option for those of you where that's easier to do. Thanks for asking that. Yeah. So, can you give a little bit of, I mean, and what is normal for Donna? I mean, what, what does this kind of do? So I don't know. Is there a standard or is there something that you can suggest? Yeah, so the Yeah, I think, um, for me, um, I kind of use it like I look at how much can I give and then I think about, can I get a little bit more? And then I think about, and that's pretty good. <laughs> if, and if you want to ask others tomorrow, you know, we'll be breaking silence after the morning. Um, Gathering here, yeah. yeah. We know there's not much to go on, but this is traditionally how it's done. Yeah. Okay. So then, uh, so we, a couple of questions. One, we think we probably answered um, about the Brahma. Would it be correct to say that the Brahmaviharas are more skillful emotional qualities to bring? So, you know, we talk about the Brahmaviharas really being more being aspects of our, our deeper nature rather than emotions, but they do have a, an affective tone to them. But it's, it's fair to say that they're more skillful qualities to bring to our interactions with ourselves and, and others, so absolutely. And then are they seen as specific antidotes for less skillful qualities, you know, the far near and far enemies? And yeah, the Brahmaviharas are... I think we may have mentioned this, used as antidotes like um, on retreats, like on, a, on our Anapanasati retreats, if people are really feeling a lot of aversion or fear, metta is often the antidote to that. Or if um, people are feeling a lot of um, uh, maybe concern about something that's happening outside the retreat, Upaka can be, you know, we had somebody on the last uh, month long who did like several days of Upaka because something was really just, um, they were... Well, that's someone, was, was Brian Gavin, 
Yeah. And so Brian ended up doing several days of Upeka, which really was helpful to him with the dynamic that was going on in his life. And we reflected later what, you know, what fortunate luck that here, you know, dying three weeks later, for him to really, and of course he was just a sterling meditator and took his practice. And of course he's doing the practice, we didn't give him any instructions beyond the same as you got. And he's, of course, telling us, well, I've got genre factors, and I think there might be a, you know, anyway, the practice was progressing towards genre for him, which wasn't a big surprise, but anyway, so with him, it was fairly extraordinary. We hadn't done that before, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, and there were a few people on the month long who did the the brown rehearse for the whole month. Other people who might have done it for, you know, a, a short period here or there where, or even just included it maybe before at the beginning of sittings. Which um, we're starting to offer is if people want to come and do the Brahma Viharas, they can. We right. don't give talks on that specifically, but we'll support them in interview and privately. Right. So, so that's any, question. any other questions or comments about anything? Thais? You talked about um, equanimity being a wisdom practice. So my question is kind of twofold. One, when you talked about um, the Brahma-Viharas being concentration practices, but I was just kind of curious about how equanimity, um, if, if that's a path straight to the positive then, or how is that... Mm-hmm. So the question is that we've mentioned that Upeka is a wisdom practice, and she's just wondering, is that a direct path to Vipassana, or how is that a wisdom practice? Mm-hmm. Good question. Go yeah, so, so part of, I mean, we could say that all of the Brahma Viharas have are the wisdom of the heart. Upaka in particular, because it's really focusing, um, there's an aspect of it that has to do with some of what is discovered potentially in Vipassana that has to do more with um, seeing through our conventional perceptions of reality in a way that um, that let's see how would I say it that can really shift how we hold well I mean ultimately the reason why the Buddhist path leads to the possibility of not suffering which is really what the Buddha set out to figure out is, is there possibly an end to suffering is through seeing through our normal attachments and perception of what we are. Thoroughly. Yeah, which is... Upeka inclines more in that direction than the other Brahma Viharas. And the other aspect, the other reason that Upeka is important is in the development of the jhanas, we made reference to this one night that from the fourth jhana on to what is called the eighth jhana, uh, upeka is one of the only remaining. It, it shows up in the fourth jhana as it begins to form, and it stays as one of the jhana factors through the eighth. So that and the one-pointedness, the ekagata, are the only two jhana factors that continue. So it becomes a really important 
quality to have access to in terms of our, our deeper nature to the concentration practice too. Yeah, so there's a way where, I mean, part of, part of what's potential in awakening is that there's less and less that really, um, that, that bothers us because there's less attachment, there's more of a sense of seeing through the normal way we understand the me Thing, you know, and so this is really part of what what allows for upeka to arise. Say, like even in the jhanas, even in, as we get to fourth jhana, upeka really replaces the the jhana factors that have more of an a more <coughs> robust kind of affective tone. It gets more and more neutral. You know, where there's just less getting sort of whipped around by life circumstances to the point where ultimately, like at the fourth stage of enlightenment, there really isn't any circumstance that's going to cause reactivity. So there are a number of um, practices beyond the Brahma Baharas before you get to Vipassana. So would all of those practices um, be taking on more and more wisdom or, you know, or or is Upaka um, just this kind of bubble of clear sight? Well, some of the, the, the question is, um, are there other practices that support uh, development of wisdom? Some of the other practices in the Samatha, um, under the Samatha umbrella, have to do with the deconstruction of the various ways we take ourselves to be real and solid. So, for example, there's a meditation of 32 body parts where one locates meditatively and basically like access concentration locates these different body parts. And the impact is once you begin sort of noticing these and you check them off your sort of semi-list, you get to a point when you found all 32 and you're out of body parts and there's this visceral sense of well, wait a minute, shouldn't I be here somewhere? And it's like you're expecting to see a little a little piece that says me on it or something like this, and it's just not there. So it's practices like this that end up doing a kind of deconstruction of various concepts that we hold about who we are and how we function. And that prepares us along the way where we go, like in our book we have one practice called the Four Elements, Earth, Water, Fire, and Air, that are done a particular way that leads to further realization of deconstruction of our materiality. So, uh, and then, then the Vipassana can start in the Sidehouse tradition. Yeah, I mean, traditionally within Theravada Buddhism, wisdom, the word wisdom, is, um, is meant to, is pointing to having direct experience of the three characteristics of existence. We talk about this on the very last day or last talk on, in our in the Anapanasati retreats. And the, so the, the three are no self, impermanence, impermanence and and dukkha or the unsatisfactoriness and suffering. And so, like in the in the samatha practice and concentration practice, we the the component of, of wisdom that's most available there is the no self 
and this is where Stephen was talking about how the jhana absorption is a non-dual state. That's a state in which the, the normal sense of the me is not present, and yet we're still conscious. And Vipassana, the emphasis is more on impermanence because we're seeing phenomena cycling very quickly, and at some point we can see a certain kind of emptiness that's possible. Where, where the solidity of phenomena, including ourselves and our mentalizing, isn't as solid as what we thought it was. So, so those are, that's traditionally what's pointed to as wisdom. But you can see that, that by having direct experiences of these things, we are much less attached. And so the, the non-attachment means that when circumstances are happening in our lives, we're not going to be as... Um, reactive and is whipped around by them. And this is really where the liberation comes from, is by not having not having our inner sense of peace and um, knowing what is really true about reality isn't dependent on whether things are the way we want them to be on the outside. And so ultimately that's freedom because we're free from being dependent on conditions for our happiness. And Upeka is really pointing to that. You see, so Upeka is saying, okay, can I, can I incline towards a way where instead of looking to circumstances, okay, now I'm really happy because this happened, now I'm really depressed because this happened, you know, rather than being really being totally dependent on that, we get less and less dependent on that. And that's what Upeka is about. Should we end? Yeah. We'll do one more end here. Probably end here is good. Should we end? Is there one more question? Well, Martin has one. I'll just make it short. Sure. Can, can, can you speak to the uh, Brown Bihars as a? Uh, I, I experienced them as being difficult from a, a concentration standpoint. Why would one use the Brown Bihars as the object if you can use the breath? Yeah, so his question is why would it, the Brown Bihars seem harder as a concentration? Yeah, why would one use that? Well, the way that the way that we learned it and the way that it was really taught by the Buddha and in the in the Pasuti Manga too, one starts with the breath. And the, the Brahma Viharas as a concentration practice are done later. Um, because first of all, you're you're having to generate this with the mind. It's not just a naturally occurring thing like the breath. The breath is always there, so it's a much easier object in terms of it just being there. Um, why do people do it? Well, there's 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 different things that get purified with the Brahma Viharas that some people feel are important for awakening. So one might not use that. I mean, that's why, like, on a one-week retreat, we don't really teach it as a concentration practice. We teach it more for the benefits and the purification of heart, which ultimately can allow for, like, more freedom around Upaka and other things. And, and none of you will truly see what the impact has been until you move back into your lives and see the interaction with people and see what's different, if anything. Including you, Martin.
Readings. Um, well, Sharon Salser's book, Loving Kindness, actually, even though it's called Loving Kindness, it does go through all of the Brahmaviharas. And it's, it's a great book. It's really accessible. It's really easy to read. Um, that's the main one we would recommend. Sharon. Sharon Salzberg, yeah. Loving Kindness. And is there a link to what you read from Jack Cornfield and Forgiveness? It's posted on the bulletin It's on the bulletin board. But you can find it on the internet. If you put in Jack Cornfield and Forgiveness Meditation, you can find it on the internet. But it is, it is up there. I don't know. It might be in one of his books. It, it might is. be in the it's Path of Heart. It is. That's what it's from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, a, which is also a wonderful it. book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a very quick point. I would mention Sharon Swalberg. I just noticed before I came to the retreat that she's doing an eight week online course in loving kindness meditation on the same principle. So if you can Google Sharon Salzberg and uh, Meta Retreat or, or um, Tricycle Magazine, perhaps, they can set up for that uh, if they okay. are so fun. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.